Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good evening, and may I take this opportunity to thank so many of you for joining us. My name is Ian White. I'm a Vice Chancellor and President of the University of Bath. And of course, it would have been lovely to welcome you to the university in person this evening. But we're very grateful to our colleagues in the Institute of Policy Research for continuing to provide interesting and informative lectures in the face of the current COVID restrictions. And of course, I would like to extend my sincere thanks this evening to our special guests, Professor Tim Lang, Professor of Food Policy at City University, and Joanna Lewis, Strategy and Policy Director at the Soil Association, both of course, having a range of eminent advisory roles that Nick Pierce will describe later. May I also thank Annie Maul, Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant for Somerset, who has offered such great support for these events and is online also. This lecture is a continuation of the highly successful IPR public lecture series, The Future is in Our Lands, which has seen topics from land use to farming and fruit production, to wilding and protecting biodiversity and our natural environments. So far, 1,400 people have attended these events with 80% having never attended a University of Bath event before. We've been delighted with the level of engagement in this work and to see how the importance of the topics covered resonates with our academic and local communities. Since the launch of this event series, the University of Bath has now adopted a climate action framework and declared a climate emergency. We've committed to 11 uh, climate action framework principles, which will guide how the university conducts business and we're firmly committed to carbon neutrality in company vehicle emissions, general heating and electricity utilities by 2030, as well as having emissions from purchase goods and services waste and employee commuting. The university has also joined the COP26 universities network, which aims to advise and support policymakers in the lead up to the conference in Glasgow. Amy Thompson from the IPR is leading this strand of work and is working to connect our academic community with policymakers involved in the COP26 negotiations. Last week, we were delighted to see the announcement of the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to the World Food Programme. Two Bath students, Grace Agueta and Willie Nakia, work for the WFP and are currently studying on our professional doctorate in policy research and practice. I believe this is the first Nobel Prize, Peace Prize awarded to Bath University students. Grace and Willie, both based in Africa and currently studying part-time through distance learning at the university, have worked for the WFP over a number of years. For them, the prestige and international recognition the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize brings will help to cement in people's minds around the world, the importance of alleviating hunger and suffering, which continues to affect so many. Indeed, also IPR has just secured funding for a two-year research fellow post to work with the Food Standards Agency. The position will lead on the de design and evaluation of effective food policies based on insights from behavioral economics, health psychology, and other social sciences working with academic colleagues here at Bath 
and the Food Standards Agency in London. We're of course very proud of the work that the university is doing to combat global challenges. And so it's a great pleasure to have this evening event today. I'd now therefore like to invite Professor Nick Pierce, Director of the Institute of Policy Research, to tell us more about our speakers um, and this evening's lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Vice-Chancellor. Thank you for that uh, thoughtful and generous introduction to this evening's uh, event. Uh, I am uh, Nick Pierce, as the Vice-Chancellor said, the Director of the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce and uh, chair this evening's uh, lecture and discussion. Um, as the Vice-Chancellor said, our lecture is being given by Professor Tim Lang, uh, who is a Professor of Food Policy at City University London, where uh, he directs the Centre for Food Policy. Um, he started out as a farmer, having done his PhD in, in, in social psychology, became a farmer, and that began his lifelong interest and his academic interest in food policy. For many years, as those of you who've read his works over many years will know, he's been engaged in academic and public research about the direction and, uh, of food policy from the local to the global. His abiding interest is in how policy addresses the mixed challenge uh, of environment, health, social justice, and citizenry concerns with food policy. What is a good food system? Uh, how is ours measured and how does it measure up? Um, and his current research interests are in uh, sustainable diets, the meaning of modern food security, and the implications of Brexit for our food system. Um, and it's really on those issues that uh, he's going to talk to us tonight. Um, his, his latest book, he's written many articles and reports. His latest book is uh, published by Penguin. It's called Feeding Britain, Our Food Problems and How to Fix Them. Um, and the issues that he's going to focus on today from that book and in his recent work are this kind of this very, very um, difficult policy combination uh, of Brexit, which is obviously changing our relationship to agricultural policy, to the funding of agriculture, to food supply and food um, uh, systems in the UK, uh, positioning us differently in respect of the world, our tariffs and so on. Um, it comes at the same time as we're dealing with COVID and the pandemic. Um, and of course, the, the longer term uh, huge challenges uh, of climate change, of biodiversity loss, of ecosystem stress. So the, the, these combined challenges uh, generating enormous pressures on how we think about our food uh, systems in this country, where we get our food from, how we produce it, how resilient our food systems are, whether we achieve uh, food, food security and whether that should be our goal. So. Those are some of the issues that Professor Lang is going to talk to us about tonight. And I'm delighted that, um, uh, again, as the Vice Chancellor said, that, um, that Joe Lewis from, Joanna Lewis from Policy, uh, the Policy and Strategy Director of the Soil Association, who's uh, taken part in these lecture series before, and I'm, I'm really great, grateful to welcome her back. She's going to give the response. She's been um, a trustee and former chair of the Food Ethics Council. Uh, before joining the Soil Association, she held roles as a convener of the Sustainable Consumption Roundtable and head of policy at the environmental think tank Green Alliance has so got a really wide ranging perspective on these questions. So thank you very much indeed, uh, Joe, for, for joining us as well this evening. So thanks very much indeed, all of you for joining us. Uh, and I'll now kick off today's lecture by handing over to Tim. Tim, over to you. Thank you very much, Nick. And, and thank you, Vice Chancellor and uh, Lord Lieutenant and participants and Joe in advance, Joe Lewis in advance and, and Nick for that very um, nice introduction and congratulations to your students on the World Food Prize. Um, I originally suggested the title for this actually is with another word to it, 
but we dropped it, but I'm bringing it back. Uh, it was originally going to be called Food Defence and Social Resilience, but we thought that probably put people off thinking it was all about military stuff. And indeed, at one point, I will talk about military stuff. Um, but I want to reclaim the notion of food defence. Um, and uh, uh, anyone who knows me, I always try to put up a slide right at the beginning to say what I'm going to talk about, so that then you can quietly go to sleep or go and get a glass of wine or something. Um, I want to explore this concept that Nick introduced about food security. It means all things to all people, but I want to get it back to that core notion of protection. Who's it protecting? Whom? What? How? And I'm then going to connect more with the world that I share with uh, Joe Lewis, that uh, the evidence is overwhelming that both the UK and indeed the world and Europe have agri-food crises. Uh, these are known, but they're actually being normalised. We almost accept um, that this is the way things are. And I want to then look at it through the lens of, um, of public policy, where I'm going to say, I think there are some old themes emerging today and also some new ones. And that's why I want to resurrect the notion of food defence. And, and I will talk briefly about military stuff because it's interesting. Uh, and I hope you'll show why, I'll show why it's interesting, but really say that I think we've got to reclaim the notion of social defence and social resilience. Um, and I'll, I'll say a bit about that. And of course that becomes very political with a small P, although at times it's with a big P. But I will end by flagging from a paper not yet out with colleagues um, of, of trying to say there are some big overview choices which we're already clear we can make. And Brexit, of course, is part of this. Um, now, um, public attitudes uh, showed even sort of a year and a half ago that uh, the public was actually worried about no deal Brexit. This is from Cantar World Panel, what they call a white paper, showing that even at the beginning of 2019, um, the public was worried. Two thirds of the British public was worried about the prospect of a no deal. This wasn't what they voted for, wasn't quite what they expected when food made it very real. You know, you might hate Europe or uh, believe the, the prime minister when he was a journalist that all bananas that were bent were gonna be straightened up if we stayed in the European Union. Um, but when it came to your food supply or chlorinated chicken, um, they weren't so happy. Uh, and interestingly, it was getting quite hard, uh, as the slide on the right, or the, 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 the figure on the right says, 10% uh, of the British public were already beginning to what they called stockpile. Uh, and these are what they were doing, and food was at the top of it. Uh, so there's something I, I would say, and I think Nick Pierce, when he was at the Cabinet Office, where I first met him uh, many years ago, um, we knew that there was a residual concern of the British public. They were nervous from mad cow disease onwards about what are they doing to our food? And it was a bit sort of edgy. And here it was being located onto Brexit. Uh, and, um, but at present, Britain is essentially in a, a, a very tricky situation. I can't think of a better phrase. I hate it, but it's not exactly a good position. I've called it a multi-whammy situation. We've got Brexit, we've got COVID-19, we've got climate change that the Vice-Chancellor rightly referred to, my own university, we all try to do that. 
Um, but ecosystem stress is upon us. It's hitting Africa worse than anyone, uh, but it's affecting Britain. Uh, alongside something that is very important in the world of food, geopolitical uncertainties. Britain leaving the European Union, a very powerful block in food uh, policy, um, uh, is basically rowing out into really choppy waters at a time when US-China tensions are tremendous. Depends what happens in the American elections, of course, but even so, they're pretty systemic. Uh, and we've got Russia being exposed as um, uh, 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 engaging in undermining and uh, 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 indeed uh, killing British citizens um, on our territory. Uh, and the entire British food system is dependent upon logistics, satellites and things, as I will show shortly. Uh, at a time of what some people on the neoliberal right like to celebrate, they want disruption. And ever since uh, um, uh, 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 1940s, economists began to talk about this. So, Sometimes people argue that disruption is a good thing. It breaks up elites. It allows new thinking to emerge. But economic disruption, when it's affected like COVID-19, suddenly people see the realities. It's not very nice. And meanwhile, we've got a look at the news in Britain at the moment. Um, as an ex-Northerner, I'm particularly interested in this, but it's not just about North, South or London versus Manchester. It's uh, this whole stress we've got of the internal market. Is Britain a single market replacing the European single market? What does that do to Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland politics? And there's, there's the stretch of food governance and legitimacy from Whitehall to the, the DA's devolved administration, Scotland, uh, Wales and Northern Ireland down to the local level. And Britain is a highly centralized um, system of governance. Though, what does this mean? Uh, well, for food, it means that the social aspects get lost. And I want to argue that the food defense and social resilience issues are seriously being lost and being replaced by a charity welfare approach to a safety net, which I don't think is good enough and is certainly not um, what the UN Declaration of, of Rights said in the year I was born, 1948, a good food society means good food for all. And that's one of, if you like, if you know your beverage, one of the beverage uh, five wants. So we're in a very interesting time. And why I want to, I will give a, a, in a later slide, give a bigger picture on food security, but I want to just flag in your brains now, the beginning of this lecture, that I'm wanting to make a connection between food defense, food resilience, or things we've got to do to protect the food system, but also social resilience, that's us, how we eat, what we do, how prepared we are, and also democracy, food democracy. And there's a, a, a connection between these that I think needs much more attention. Uh, and indeed, I argued when I first met Nick, when he was in the cabinet office, I was arguing this then. I feel it very strongly now. And if you want it in really boring detail, um, he kindly flagged my book that came out the week of the lockdown, Feeding Britain, where a lot of this is spelled out. Um, we've got to negotiate all of this, um, uh, uh, but here I promised you this, uh, you know, one 
academic paper a long time ago said that even 20 years ago, food security was becoming literally, I think, of about 100, 120 different meanings. But crudely, you can distill it down to these. These are the ones that really become uh, helpful for locating what are we bothered about. Food nationalism is sort of almost implying Britain should feed itself. Self-sufficiency obviously is partly about that. But food nationalism is, you know, in the soft version is you put a, a union jack on it and you do what the red tractor scheme does, say, you know, eat British and opinion polls show the British want to eat British, but then they don't do it when it comes to it. And 40% of our food comes through the EU, 30% of it directly from within the EU. And we've said we're going to go. And we've said on December the 31st, we're dropping out on a hard deal. Well, that's going to be very interesting. I have not given stuff that I talk about elsewhere, but, you know, 40% tariff goes on, um, on on some meats. Overall, the, the food industry calculates 22% increase of tariffs by price will go on to British food. Uh, and that will also hit exports. We could come back to that if you want. But food defense is about protecting food sources and supply lines. Food control is who's controlling it, I'll say about that. Resilience is this very interesting notion we've borrowed from engineers and uh, indeed um, ecologists who picked up on it um, from the uh, early 20th century. The capacity to withstand shock and to bounce back, maybe to a new state, uh, but nonetheless to bounce back. You know, the bamboo bends, but it, it's still there when the typhoon has gone over, or most of it is there. Food risks, this notion about what can damage and inflict difficulties onto the food status quo. Can we measure those risks? Can we control them? What food capacities have we got? What skills and capacities and capabilities and infrastructure? And I particularly want to talk about infrastructure. I think it's something people like uh, Nick and I need to focus much more on and I will say some fairly hard things about British infrastructure later and then this notion from the developing world and the peasants movement actually food sovereignty uh, a term, term coined by small farmer organizations meaning primary producers have more control um, I haven't gone into it in, in much length in, in this but I have in great length in my book Feeding Britain um, basically farming and fishing gets sweet nothing from uh, what we as consumers in towns pay for food. Uh, the gross value added of farming is about 7%, 8%, and it varies by what they're, what they're making, what they're growing, what they're producing, but uh, most of the money goes off, off the land. So we have to have a food focus, not a farm focus, if we're going to deal with these things. Now, the agri-food strategy um, has come into us uh, and I'll talk about this in a moment. But uh, I want to just say that, uh, well, actually, I think I've just dropped, I've just, yeah, actually, I've just um, jumbled a, um, a, I'll go back. Um, uh, just sort of go into um, where we are on food. Um, essentially, there isn't much evidence that doesn't point to the UK agri-food system being in some sort of difficulties. Food is coming off the land, the shops are full, but whether we look at 
what people eat, the inequalities of health outcomes of it, how much money goes to farming, the treadmills, the loss of biodiversity. Um, uh, Britain is not in a good place. The TV is full, and I will give a picture of David Attenborough later, of that sort of world of ecosystems under stress globally, but we've tended to think it's elsewhere. It's not, it's in Britain. Britain is actually a very extraordinary place. We have a very peculiar, in all the richness that word implies, history of food policy. We can go back a long way, but essentially the first industrial nation, um, we, uh, after the Napoleonic Wars in the 1815s, what were called corn laws, uh, tariffs were put at the borders to protect the landed aristocracy and their control over food systems and to stop importation of potentially cheaper foods from the Baltic or wherever. Um, and and uh, then the 30 year political row went on ending in 1846 with the repeal of the Corn Laws, which basically set, uh, split the Conservative Party, split Parliament, split the Conservative Party for about 40 years, uh, 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 as some people have argued Brexit will, or indeed already has. Um, uh, and it led to a long and slow decline of British food and, and the rise of imports, rising by the last uh, uh, few decades of the 19th century to a, almost a vast majority of food coming from the colonies from, from the empire. But the Boer War began to threaten that. And suddenly a, some very healthy, very tall, very fit Boers, uh, Dutch extraction, South African farmers, knocked hell out of the British military. And it led to an extraordinary debate about the physical deterioration of British physique. And literally there was lots of racist and eugenic analysis that kicked in, uh, but, but which we could go into. But for me, the way the most important point of reflection was this really under, underknown Royal Commission on Supply of Food and Raw Material in Time of War, which had extraordinary evidence collection about the shocking state of, of Britain and indeed uh, of its real uh, food insecurity uh, uh, that the Boers didn't actually undermine, but then exactly 10 years later, it was by World War I. And in the middle of World War I, a Ministry of Food was set up to try and deal with the public, began to introduce rationing. It was closed down rapidly after World War I. Uh, the business didn't like it. They wanted to get back as Lord Milner at the time said to business as usual. Uh, uh, but came back again in uh, 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 World War II. But actually, if you notice, I put 1936, that's because Beveridge was brought back uh, to consider food policy. He'd been the permanent secretary in the Ministry of Food. He was an agricultural economist. We think of him now as a, the father of British welfare system. He wasn't, he was an agricultural economist. And he, in 1936, said, Holy Moses, we're in the same place. We're in a very difficult place of food insecure because we've got these extended food supply chains and uh, we've got to do something about it. He was ignored, completely ignored. Uh, and, uh, for, for, for the Brits, it was lucky that um, uh, uh, Churchill actually, when he took over, uh, dumped the previous prime minister and took over as prime minister uh, as the war had begun, um, he appointed a very astute businessman. Um, my mother indirectly worked for him actually at one point in Liverpool, um, 
Lord Walton, put him in the Lords, and uh, I will show you something from his desk later. Uh, but essentially a really important rethink of the repeal of the Corn Laws occurred then, ending up with the Agricultural Act, and then uh, a system of subsidies and, and protecting and, and, and reinvestment in food and farming to build supply chains happened. We joined the European Union, substituted the deficit funding scheme that we'd set up in Britain and entered the common agricultural policies system of subsidies. And uh, that basically had a big rethink uh, uh, in the 1990s and, uh, and again, and continues to the day, not that we're in it anymore, uh, but a really big rethink happened in um, 2007-8 when the commodity crisis occurred and world food prices doubled in uh, eight months. And that's when I met Nick, when he was in the cabinet office, because suddenly the rich world said, wow, it's not just Africa there's a problem, something fundamental is going on. And actually a very interesting process of rethinking by the British state went on. And we got a good national food policy beginning, hammered out much argument over three years. And it was all thrown away when the coalition came in. And now we are where we are. We're trying to reinvent that, but we're out of the European Union, where I repeat, we get about 40% of our food. So there's a sort of Cook's tour of, of where we are. Um, and uh, here's the map I promised you. Uh, that map on the left was above um, Walton's desk. He uh, asked the civil servants to produce it. Uh, and there it is. He said, you know, um, sometimes people think I'm the person who invented food miles. I, I did the term with others, uh, but the notion by no means. Uh, he said, if this is it, we're in trouble. And within six years, Britain doubled its food production to try and reduce the difficulties of that. And there's beverage in the middle. And there on the right is one of the very first penguins uh, by two people. Uh, you know, you've got to be a social policy specialist to know Richard Titmuss, the first ever uh, professor of social policy in Britain at the LSE. A young man, he researched uh, public attitudes to food, uh, going and standing in queues and listening to people and realized that food isn't just about nutrients or beverage, uh, sorry it does, but it was about mass psychology. Legro Clark, a very interesting man, uh, forgotten now, but a really important man, uh, um, uh, wounded and blinded in the last week of World War I and basically dedicated his life after that to actually food policy, really important for someone like me. Um, um, uh, this is the reality of British farming. That red line is the subsidy block and you notice it tails off. Essentially the the bars in grey is what British farming gets as income uh, but it's held afloat by the extra income which is the red line. That's us, the taxpayer. And that's going to be phased out and it's going to be phased out and replaced by funding for ecosystems. So farmers won't get paid for food, won't get paid for existing, they'll get paid only if they look after the land. Whoopee, say I, except if we don't include food into that, we are stuffed if it comes to any difficulties. And I say that categorically. Uh, we have a very strange state, state as in the state, it can't decide what it wants. It can't decide whether it wants to just leave food to the nine retailers who dominate it and now do dominate it, 
they've been given the very big present by COVID-19. The hospitality sector has been put into nigh ruins in parts. And you see, it's very interesting, the fight out is partly about that at the moment, because um, it's the biggest employer. It employs 1.8 million people. Food's the biggest employer in Britain, 4.1 million people. Farming is piddling and small, less about 400,000 people, many of whom are part-time. But hospitality is a huge employer. No subsidies for hospitality. Uh, uh, but uh, we've got a situation where the crisis of food, the, if, we're, if we're apocalyptic, which I'm not, but the challenge for food has to be addressed by, I think, a multi-criteria approach. Now, if you go and Google or if you're an academic or you're an economist, you'll think the multi-criteria analysis is something that's all about cost-benefit analysis. It isn't. We have to rescue multi-criteria analysis uh, from the uh, econometrics. Uh, we've got to be thinking about not just food as nutrients, but ecosystems, not just thinking about the food economy as jobs, but about where does the money go? We've got to think about food as the mental stuff, culture. And as I put here, food in some respects is in food culture in Britain is in fantasy land. We think we can get food ad libitum. You know, when I was a psychologist, you trained rats or you ran rats through mazes and you do experiments on ones that you could eat, could eat whatever they like, whenever they like, uh, uh, how they like, but you controlled it. Well, it's almost like we're like that at some levels. There's only about half a day in the year, Christmas Day, when you can't go and get food. Uh, uh, there is something really extraordinary about food that just comes from supermarket shelves, but underlying it all are these social divisions. Now, what's a good food system uh, that Nick posed right at the beginning in, in, in my lips, but uh, it's what I'm about, um, well, it's all of this. So how do you juggle that? If you're on low incomes, you want it cheap. If you want it good quality, does that mean it's more expensive? Uh, where are the jobs? Is it a good food system if we get rid of half of the food jobs? Or is it if we equalize the flow of money? The, how do we balance biodiversity with carbon uh, or with water? Britain, it's awash with rain at the moment. Uh, we tend to think of ourselves as uh, abundant in water. We've actually got flooding in some of our best agricultural lands at times. Uh, and then we have droughts. This is the new world that we've got to deal with and that policy is, I don't think, addressing particularly well. Uh, uh, what it needs is what the Eat Lancet Commission that I was the policy lead on uh, took three and a half years through in the beginning, 18 people that turned into 35 people into a room and we were given two years, it took three and a half years to say, can we feed the world, the globe, equitably and well without destroying ecosystems? And our answer was yes, but it requires a very big shift in what we eat. Actually, we concluded, this was my sort of responsibility, that the whole food system has to change if we just want to uh, balance ecosystems and nutrient flows. It means this. It means we have to rethink what's in red and begin to do what's in black on the right. 
we've got to grow more of what we can, but only sustainably. We've got to use land more for trees and less for farm animals. It's crazy to be feeding cereals to animals. Uh, uh, that land can be used differently. It may be profitable to do it, but it's crazy to do it. The land is better used in different ways. I'm not going to go through all of these, but um, you know, the labour process where now we've left the European Union, uh, some uh, food industries are entirely dependent upon migrant labour from within the European Union. We've cut it off. There is no system in place yet for what that looks like. So what does that need? It needs investment to capacity. Some just say, oh, robots will deal with this. Well, if you're going to have robots picking strawberries rather than the Romanians or Hungarians or Latvians, not that they'll do it now, um, that means mechanization, it means uh, monocropping, it means doing things that then the ecologists get less happy about because they want biodiversity in the field, not just at the edge of it. These are tricky mixes that we've got to work out and start doing very quickly. Uh, uh, don't let's forget the experiment and social resilience that Britain did in World War One we developed the queue. In the Boer War, we developed the concentration camp for Boers. But in World War I, we developed the queue. That top left-hand photo is from the Imperial War Museum of food queues, not food bank queues, sorry, it shouldn't be food bank queue. And World War II, there it is. The, the clothes change, the queue is the same. And then before the current sort of, in the middle of austerity, there's a very early photo of a food bank queue, but look at the recent one bottom right. This is one that's actually taken from a video. Even I was shocked by this a queue going through the elephant and castle in London and round the block and outside. Uh, but this isn't just queuing for handouts, it's disciplining people that this is all they can expect. That's not resilience. That's not resilience. Uh, meanwhile, we have a highly concentrated food system. When Britain joined the European Union, or what was the common market in 1973, and then voted in 75, uh, joined under a Conservative government, and pushed through by a Conservative government, and confirmed under a Labour government, um, we have already had a highly concentrated food system. Um, uh, uh, today, this is what it looks like. Lots more about this sort of economic stuff political economy stuff in my book. But literally, these are uh, two weeks ago figures uh, that I uh, got from Cantal World Panel. Uh, the top five, what's uh, called the CR, the concentration ratio of five for retailing in Britain is five companies have three quarters of the food service. Uh, land ownership is trickier to get hold of. Um, there's some very interesting work going on now, initially by NGOs. Guy Shrubshall works at Friends of the Earth, uh, a very interesting and thoughtful book. Um, and this is an estimate of English land ownership. Oligarchs, city bankers, Dyson, the, the, the Hoover, uh, uh, the, the vacuum cleaner billionaire, you know, has bought something like 30,000 acres of my home county, Lincolnshire, very rich agricultural land. I, I, I know a bit about it. It's been farmed very interestingly, lots of technical investment and so on. Um, but looking across it, we, the British, own very little of it. The consumers own very little of it. And, uh, and 
and this is actually extremely interesting if one's talking about land use. Who's going to do this? How are you going to persuade landowners to do the right thing for land? This is a series of lectures about the land. Uh, 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 the, the picture on land, this is a complicated one, forgive me, but I put it in, again, this is from my book, uh, but from excellent work done by uh, CPRE, uh, collating the data, just to give you a sense of the shift over time. Um, just Britain's land ownership has become fewer people owning it, but the size of their holdings has gone up. Uh, that's what that slide uh, shows you. Um, but uh, this is all a question of evidence. One of my sub-themes in this lecture is about evidence. If we know the problems, why are we not doing an anything about it? I work in a public health school. In the, uh, I'm a social scientist, but I work a lot on public health, as Joe knows. Um, the, the figures are just dramatic. This is from last week's, later, the very latest, summation of data from the Global Burden of Disease Studies, that began with the World Bank and the, the leading Chris Murray of the Global Burden of Diseases team that pulls these together, was one of my fellow commissioners on the Atlantic Commission. Um, uh, food is now the biggest driver of health worldwide, the biggest. Um, uh, but these are the list of all of them. And then you can look at them. And they vary by country, but in all countries, food diet is now the biggest impact, source of impact on on ill health. That's an extraordinary situation to be when uh, the beverage generation, the, the, the um, Lord Walton generation said, we must try and do something to improve food and agriculture for Britain afterwards and make people eat and be healthier, eat well and be healthier. And their answer was just produce more. And that made sense then, but now it doesn't. Diet is now over consumed as well as mal-consumed, as well as under-consumed. It's what another very brilliant Lancet Commission, the Syndemics Commission, chaired by uh, Boyd Swinburne, uh, a, a doctor, but uh, an epidemiologist in New Zealand, uh, a really brilliant piece of work, putting together uh, the, the diet over and under consumption alongside climate change. And he called this, well, they called it a Syndemics problem, linking the coincidence of these big problems. Um, meanwhile, uh, the footprint, forgive this one, I put this in quite detail again if people wanted to see it. Um, this is actually from a wonderful study by Joe Paul at Oxford and Nemechek in Switzerland. Um, but this is one that breaks down in one graphic form something that they say that's very useful and I know interests Joe. Um, across the top, you can see the different sources of greenhouse gas emissions. They can be from land use change, from actually what farmers do, through to the packaging. Uh, and, and they're color coded in this. So you can see actually way the biggest greenhouse gas emissions of any foods, uh, this is worldwide, is, is from beef. But actually packaging is a very small part of that. The biggest bit is actually on the farm. It's on the farm but and land use. Uh, using land to feed the animal, but also what you do on the farm. Um, through to nuts or, or maize, you can look at these later, they vary. But this is the sort of environmental data uh, uh, which coincides with the health data 
and makes people like Boyd Swinburne and the and the Lancet's and Debits Commission conclude that we've got to address climate change and public health at the same time. Is what Jeff Rayner and I called in our ecological public health book, um, ecological public health. We've got to put the ecology of, 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 of land and ecosystems alongside the ecology of human health. Uh, so uh, is this all uh, you know, impossible to deal with? Uh, is this a fantasy, just get our food from anywhere? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I'm putting this up, it's, it's a complicated slide, but I'll summarize it very quickly. Um, this is work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, which has run for quite a few years a global food security index. This is on top left. The UK is the fifth richest but about to become the sixth richest economy because we're sliding down um, uh, in the world. And of 113 countries that they have data for measuring affordability, availability, quality, and safety, Britain is already below fifth, it's 17th, actually. It, um, I had a hand in this in the early days, the, if we include sustainability environment in it, uh, Britain drops to 24th, out of 67 countries on which they can have data. Uh, that's bottom right. Britain ain't doing well, actually. That's not me saying it, that's the Economist Intelligence Unit, just using hard data. Um, now I want to pick up my theme of food defense and social resilience. I want you not to confuse defense with military, although military is part of it. Uh, food resilience is basically back to the core of public health. Public health is about protecting people. The word protection in the economist world is something you reach for the cross and the Bible. Uh, it's the devil. Uh, protectionism is terrible. In public health is complete reverse. We want to protect people. In environment, we want to protect the environment. Uh, do we want to protect people, yes or no? I think we do. Uh, uh, so we've got to defend them uh, uh, from what is going on at the moment. And we've got to make normal what currently is exceptional. Low calorie, healthy, low carbon, uh, 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 healthy diets. That's exceptional, not normal. Uh, if we go, let's start with the military. Let's get this out of the way. On the left-hand side of the slide is the UK Navy in 1939. It had 377 ships. I've listed them there with another 159 in construction. It had huge employment being created in preparation for rapid preparation. Uh, look at that list. Today, actually last year, the latest figures that I've got access to, uh, we have a total of 75 ships in the Royal Navy, um, and there they are. And I'll come back to this uh, in a different way. Uh, the Defence Committee is not something that people in public policy usually read its uh, reports on. I recommend that public policy people do start doing it because it's extremely interesting. Uh, there are new threats. It's not just a matter of protecting supply lines. There's the geopolitics, there's the cybersecurity, there's the climate. That's a field top right in Britain, a maize field flooded. We're getting this. Meanwhile, if we look at the 
public expenditure, the defense ministry has nearly 40 billion pounds in the, well, the year we just left, uh, uh, or the year we're now in on the right, uh, whereas environment, food and rural affairs has about 2 billion. The, there's a, a set of priorities there that's quite interesting. If you look at where it's going, uh, you know, submarines over five years are getting 44 billion pounds of expenditure. If it comes to border control, uh, uh, just compare UK, Italy, Turkey, Spain, Greece, Croatia, and Netherlands. If you want to protect food coming across uh, the channel, uh, just look at the UK compared to say Greece. Greece's coastline is eight and a half thousand miles and it's got uh, a lot of patrol ships. Uh, the UK has got very few. I stared in wonderment at one in Holyhead Harbour on Anglesey uh, a few months ago and the, the, the crew were having to go to Sainsbury's to get their food. I thought it symbolised it all actually. Um, and essentially, if you look at the bottom, um, uh, the defense, UK Defence Journal called us worryingly low. Um, and this is why many people are worried, and I'm one. And three years ago, co-wrote a report saying this was to be very, very seriously worried about. Uh, cues on the M20 coming from uh, ships and Eurotunnel. Uh, uh, we now know categorically 50,000 new customs officials have been needed to deal with the paperwork. Far from getting rid of bureaucracy, we've got new bureaucracy. That is an aerial view on the middle right of just one of 10 lorry parks being created to uh, siphon lorries off. Uh, you'll be glad to know though, that uh, last week, uh, the Minister of Transport did approve putting toilets down the M20 so that when the lorry drivers are held in queues of two days duration, they can go and um, drop their feces hygienically. As a public health man, I'm really relieved about that. We've got a problem. We've got a problem. What is it we want to defend? Well, I think it's fairly simple. It's people and infrastructure. And that's access, availability, affordability, and production, distribution, and consumption. On the left is a now much used uh, policy map my colleagues at the Center for Food Policy did of department by department, who was involved in any food role in Britain. And there they are, you, you can look at that later. Essentially, there is now no coordination across those. In the process of 2007 to 10, that I referred to where I first met Nick Pierce, um, a cabinet office subcommittee on food was created to liaise this. We don't have that anymore, it was abolished. And a civil service uh, coordination committee was created beneath that, that was abolished too. On the right, meanwhile, we've got the simplification going on in the European Union, which is aware of these sort of difficulties. And this is actually the latest farm to fork strategy that we've just left. Uh, at least they're beginning to realize there has to be integration. I don't want to talk about Europe, but we're not doing what we should be doing. Uh, meanwhile, where we've just left is doing what both they and we should be doing. Uh, I repeat, food banks 
on the right, my photos for earlier, is not resilience. Resilience is assuring all the population to be able to get the majority of their diet from that picture on the left. Normalizing affordable, good quality diets for all is resilience. Earlier this year, colleagues and I wrote to the Prime Minister, also to the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and the Chief Executive of Public Health England, saying we must have health as one of the criteria for food crisis and food emergency management. Uh, uh, we were ignored. And then belatedly, George Eustace, to his credit, Secretary of State did right, because we pilloried him and them uh, for uh, incompetent replies. The public health world was scandalized by it. Uh, but essentially, the answer that George Eustace gave uh, was, don't worry, welfare is dealing with it. It didn't. The government prepared for 1.2 million people having uh, a, a food parcel every week. Um, people who didn't need it got it. But the Food Foundation showed that 8.1 million people were going without food in the COVID-19 um, lockdowns. What do we need? I promised David Attenborough. Uh, we need more of this. The unprecedented six select committees coming together with the House of Commons and creating the Climate Assembly. I was an expert witness to it, and it was a very moving, very brilliantly run process. Uh, listening to the people, 100 plus, quote unquote, ordinary, in other words, well, none of us are ordinary, very ordinary and good people from all over the UK, very carefully chosen to be representative of all the major demographic things, met for what was going to be six weekends, but it was stopped by COVID-19, but they then went virtual, and they then produced a report, which I strongly recommend that you read if you don't know it. And on food, it had very important things to say. I've summarized them there. Dramatically reducing meat and dairy production, restoring biodiversity, reskilling farmers for the change that's needed, reduced uh, 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 difficulties on, on, on supply chains and transport and so on. Really very practical and very sensible things. Uh, this is what the government ought to be doing. It isn't doing it though. We're waiting for, and now we'll have to go back, I put it in the wrong place for some reason, we're waiting for this the National Food Strategy. Forgive me, I obviously put it in the wrong place. Um, there's Henry Dibbleby, a very nice man. I like him, I have a lot of time for him. He did a good job for Michael Gove, uh, the co-founder of, uh, of Leon, uh, the organic uh, fast food chain. Um, he uh, was asked to address this crisis. People like me were kicking up fusses about it was taken into DEFRA. He published the first part of uh, the National Food Strategy in July. A lot of it was uh, interesting, very good, um, uh, but all the key recommendations he made have actually been rejected by the government. And, and to my distress and others, he backed a ridiculous trade and agriculture commission, which had been set up to deal with the problem of food standards and the US trade deal. Uh, 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 to keep the National Farmers Union quiet. The good news is the really important report is due in 2021, but by then we'll have left. That's the, the little problem. I've now got to skip back, forgive me. This is my mistake, forgive me, forgive me. We're almost there. Um, um, uh, the term food defense, 
is being taken by companies, they're the people who are resurrecting it, actually, which is why I want to rescue it from just them. It's good that they're doing it. But they're using food defense as something to protect reputations, company by company analysis. We in Britain uh, have got a, a, a PAS 1996 on how to protect and defend your food company from basically fraud and adulteration or deliberate malware or deliberate tampering or um, terrorists um, injecting some noxious poison into your food and then causing panic from it. Um, on the right, the slide is from the US, uh, the FDA doing not dissimilar work. My, I don't have problems with that. I have problems if only that is food defense. As I put in my title, it's food, uh, uh, it's fraud focused, not systemic. It's corporate oriented, not population oriented. It's product uh, item by item focused. And that's, I don't think, uh, particularly useful. We mustn't forget that we're now in a very interesting tension going on within the British state between the center, Whitehall. It's not London, it's Whitehall. Whitehall and the devolved administrations. And, and there is a long tradition of policy development, which uh, I can barely touch upon. I love the photo on the right. That's uh, Tom Williams looking, looking like a good Edwardian gentleman. He was actually in 1947. He's the architect of the first, the Agriculture Act that repealed the repeal of the Corn Laws. And then there's uh, farmer Jim Pryor uh, and John Gummer and the famous Burgos. Uh, uh, Hilary Benn, uh, a vegetarian who actually really got a grip of food strategy uh, after the commodity crisis, and Michael Gove, who got realised that food could be very damaging unless um, we got something sorted out if he really wanted Brexit. I like that photo of him looking like he's praying. Um, and that's the challenge that uh, Henry, Henry Dimbleby has got. This, if you like, is the void that we've had since Nick Pierce left the cabinet office, and we've had 10 wasted years. And there's a rapid learning having to go on at the moment, which I won't go into in too much detail. So where are we to conclude? Uh, in a paper forthcoming from Eric Milston and Terry Marsden, my friends from Sussex Science Policy Research Unit and Terry Marsden at the Sustainable Places Research Institute at Cardiff and myself, um, I've, I've summarized an enormous table that we are developing. Um, uh, actually picking up a theme that Henry Dimbleby uh, threw into his first paper, uh, borrowed from Charles Mann's book, uh, Wizards and Prophets. Um, you can look at this later, but essentially we've got, if you like, a, a Dominic Cummings approach to food, radical technological changes in neoliberalized markets, or you've got what most uh, environmentalists would go for, security and sustainability. And you've got sort of muddle through status quo. Uh, and the critical things is that big choices are having to be made. I won't go through this slide completely, but if you look at the bottom land, this is a series about land, status quo is continued ownership concentration and the owner decides what happens. The wizard approach is continued intensification and commodification to allow lots of tree planting. If you like, it's the Zach Goldsmith approach. I know, I know him and have a lot of time for him. Uh, 
the prophets, not yet clear what they want actually yet, uh, but all of it's being defined by that uh, critical business on the right that the government's already putting into law through the agriculture bill for England going through parliament at the moment uh, of defining that you'll only get subsidies to replace the common agricultural policy subsidies if you deliver public goods, public goods being defined as ecosystems. Why not food? Why is horticulture not being uh, uh, pump primed? This is absolutely stupid. Britain has 18 million hectares of land, 6 million of which are cropped. Only 165,000 acres are in horticulture. I was born in Lincoln, actually on a hill above the fens, but most of British food of horticulture comes from sea level or near below. The Netherlands is preparing for sea level going up. Britain is for understandable reasons, deciding to withdraw. If you go and look at the National Infrastructure Commission and thinking, uh, we should be actually preparing to move and develop horticulture further uphill. That's the sort of radical perception and view that comes from the sort of analysis that I've been giving you. Uh, I think part of that picture, I don't know whether Nick will agree with me, is about food democracy. We have a very interesting fight out going on between Central Whitehall and this lot, Manchester, City Hall, London, uh, 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 Newcastle, uh, sorry, Birmingham, Cardiff, Stormont, bottom left, Edinburgh in the middle. Uh, Britain is not dealing well or equitably with powers to do something about a regionalization, a bio-development of food systems. And yet I think that's what's needed if we want to deal with land. We're not dealing with the avalanche of ultra-processed foods. Just look at the size growth of foods. Fatty, salty, sugary foods, not just increasing in the British market, but increasing in size. I haven't put in, but Carlos Montero and colleagues in Brazil who developed the notion of ultra-processing, uh, they did a very big study, meticulous study of the European Union, Britain's data in, in that. Britain eats the biggest percentage of its diet from ultra-processed foods. 51% of what the Brits eat on average is ultra-processed foods. No wonder we have this catastrophic obesity and overweight problem. It's not just to do with food, it's about making walking and building exercise into daily life harder to do as well. And here's the figures of horticulture. I probably going to offend Joe uh, from the Soil Association, I want more horticulture. If I have 30 seconds with the minister, I would say horticulture is the critical issue. We have to add a naught <laughs> to that horticultural figure. Total agricultural available area of the UK, 8.7 million hectares, croppable 6 million, just 165,000 hectares. Woodland, we've got a double, triple uh, as well. We can only do that. Uh, and the good news from endless studies is that if we eat a more plant-based diet, 
that animals have their place. No, I'm not arguing anything to say, get rid of animals, but having them better quality and less is a much better rule. And in one slide, this summarizes a sort of picture that we can develop. This is from a really excellent series of studies done by Zero Carbon Britain, based at the uh, education wing of the Center for Alternative Technology, uh, peer reviewed, really good. Um, if you look at Britain's landmass there over on the left, the food, the land being used for food for us, most of that is, is animals, by the way, is in orange. What we should be doing is over there on the right. If we want to at the same time really increase, um, uh, you know, uh, more biodiverse uses elsewhere. But I think Joe and I would agree that more biodiversity into the cropping area is part of that picture. And the good news about that is we can get, and this is from the United Nations latest global biodiversity outlook out a few months ago. If you look across this, across from 2000 to 2050, things are getting worse. They're catastrophic in Britain. When I was reviewing the data on biodiversity in Britain, I was really shocked actually how bad it was. The loss of birds, loss of insects, et cetera, et cetera. We can reverse it, but it re requires a whole range of things on the right-hand side of that slide. Conservation, climate action, reducing other drivers, uh, sustainable, altering how we grow the food, not just what we produce, and also altering and shifting what we consume. It is possible to do it. And, and if we do it, uh, the avoidable deaths improve as well. I won't talk this through. This is from the Lancet report that I was part of. Um, essentially, uh, on the left, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, flexitarian, and the UK diet. UK diet, uh, we save a lot of uh, uh, of land use and in, improve um, the reduction of nitrogen and phosphates and uh, carbon emissions. Uh, and at the same time, we save worldwide at least 11 million deaths a year by going to a better, healthier diet. Um, in one very simple slide uh, graphic, human health and ecosystems are linked on the left, as Jeff Rayner and I showed in our ecological public health book eight years ago with Oxford University Press, those that connection of human and ecosystems health are themselves driven by other processes. Um, so I've tried to show why I think food defense and, and social resilience are part of the eco-resilience problem, but that also takes us into the world, the complicated, messy world of political economy that Nick, uh, Pierce and I, and indeed Joe Lewis know only too well. So that's me done. Over to you now, Joe. Thanks very much indeed, Tim. Thanks very much indeed, Tim, uh, for that panoramic, fascinating lecture. Um, we'll come to questions. We've got some questions and I've got plenty of things to talk as well about, but Joe, we'll hand it to you to respond and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Joe. Many thanks, Nick. Um, Tim, if you can stop sharing your slides. I'm just going to load up a very few. Here we are. So um, my biggest challenge is um, to avoid violently agreeing with much of what Tim has said. Um, I'm clearly not going to be able to respond to, to everything if you're all going to be able to get to your glasses of wine, um, but I will just try and pick up on a couple of themes. 
Food security is definitely back in currency in the policy debate at a key moment, not least thanks to Tim's brilliant book. I and mean, from the Soil Association's perspective, it's won us some space with the conservation NGOs to say this is why you need to talk about food uh, and the impact of how the UK produces or imports its food. You can't just talk about how the new farm subsidy framework can pay farmers to free up farmland uh, for trees and for wildflower corridors. Tim is absolutely right that the national food strategy needs to get a proper handle on this though because food security is a concept that can be very helpful in the right hands, in Tim's hands, but there is also a risk I want you to be aware of that it can become unhelpful. In the wrong hands it becomes about yield maximization of a narrow range of commodity crops, so wheat and maize chiefly, destined mostly not for food, human food, but for animal feed, for biofuels, uh, and for those ultra-processed edible food-like substances that Tim was referring to. One of the slim silver linings of Brexit, I'm just trying to move my slide on, uh, is that it has created an appetite for governments to build back better or grow back better as we've uh, termed it in this policy manifesto. It felt like an important moment for the Soil Association to set out our route map for resilience as we've called it. And for us, this is clearly about environmental resilience as well as social resilience. I love uh, Tim's term ecological public health, uh, helps join the dots. Food production that doesn't safeguard the natural world and a stable climate is clearly by definition not secure, especially as the next big climate shock is likely to be climate driven. If we are serious about food security, I would say we have to ask ourselves three big questions. The first is, is our food system actively undermining food security by making crises more likely? Top of our list in Grow Back Better is transforming livestock farming to dramatically reduce the risk of pandemics, yes, but also crucially antibiotic resistance. I'd add that to Tim's multi-whammy list. Uh, it's caused in large part by the routine use of antibiotics in industrial livestock farming. And former Chief Medical Officer Sally Davies has warned that antimicrobial resistance is a ticking time bomb which threatens to make COVID seem like a sideshow. Now the UK is the only country set to be the only country in Europe that isn't banning the preventive mass medication of livestock with antibiotics. And of course a US trade deal risks an influx of industrially farmed meat produced with five times higher levels of antibiotic use even than the UK. Industrial, indoor, indoor industrial livestock is of course fed on cereals. Tim spoke about the craziness of feeding cereals to animals. And yet a couple of weeks ago at a Westminster forum on food security, Jeffrey's chief scientist Gideon Henderson gave a climate speech uh, in which he spoke about the opportunity for the UK to further intensify livestock production to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions per kilo of meat if you feed ruminants more cereals, he said, and less grass, in indoor systems, they grow faster, um, i.e. they lead shorter lives and the, the net climate impact goes down. Now, clearly this is not joining the dots between climate and health. 
Back to social resilience, um, COVID has been a worrying reminder, as Kim said, of how vulnerable we are with our poor diets, that 51% of ultra-processed food in our shopping basket compared to 14% in France. So the food security question can no longer be, are we producing enough calories in the UK? It is this business about nutritious crop diversity. Are we, do we have the nutritious crop diversity we need to feed people a healthy diet, including in times of crisis? Can we afford to dedicate 10 times more arable land, again, to animal feed than we do to horticulture? And lastly, with supply chains, with COVID, we learned efficiency and resilience are not at all the same thing. That specialization into completely separate nationalized retail and catering supply chains left us with a tragedy of food waste on the one hand and shortages on the other with millions of liters of milk destined for coffee shops being poured down the drain. But we do need to strike a new balance between efficiency and, and resilience with more diverse and regionalized routes to market. So how are we gonna help that happen Public procurement of food, 2.4 billion pounds a year is spent on it. It's got to be part of the answer to this question. Although Tim and I, I think, disagree about how much of a priority it is. It's just one element, clearly, of the investment that we need in the re regionalization of our food economies. It does feel, I think we need a reason to be cheerful, perhaps after Tim's lecture. It does feel like we're taking a genuine step forward with dynamic food procurement. Um, which is an innovation in IT and logistics. You might be um, interested to know it was pioneered here in Bath by Bath and North East Somerset Council and by local company Fresh Range. And it allows small and local producers to supply flexibly into the public sector, where in the past they would always have been excluded by these big uh, requirements to supply huge volumes year round. The Farrington Farm, for instance, at Farrington Gurney is now supplying seasonal gluts of organic veg into fast school meals, including my own children's school in Weston, where it's turned into top class meals by Chef Stew, who you can see on the right there. But the good news is, this isn't just local, Crown Commercial Services has got behind this innovation with a regional Southwest pilot. If that's successful, it will be rolled out nationwide. This localization and regionalization agenda, it's clear it's not 100% self-sufficiency agenda. It's not to say we should be turning our backs on trade. What matters is restoring some balance. We've got to ask ourselves, are we growing uh, the right food in the right places for climate and nature and health? One last thing I'm going to say, one fascinating contribution to this debate is the modeling done by French think tank Idri. They were really wrestling with with his multi-criteria approach, albeit they were focused on optimizing outcomes for climate, for biodiversity, and for health. They're launching a UK version in January, joint with the Food, Farming, and Countryside Commission. The model shows that if we significantly reduce grain-fed meat in our diets, so that's chicken, bacon, grain-fed beef, uh, intensive dairy, it's possible in yield terms to transition all of Europe's farms to agroecology, largely phasing out nitrogen fertilizer and pesticides, and to still feed a growing European population a healthy diet, maintain export surplus, and stop offshoring our environmental impact, which is chiefly about animal feed. The nitrogen issue is really important. It's arguably been a big blind spot in the climate debate. Oxford University research has shown that cutting back nitrogen use in farming is crucial to achieve 
uh, net zero warming because nitrous oxide is such a long lived greenhouse gas. And animal feed again is the big issue for nitrogen. 80% of nitrogen fertilizer used in Europe is used to produce animal feed. So in fact, if I was going to be really radical, um, I would say that in, of all our asks in the Grow Back Better Manifesto, uh, and all that Tim has said, again, the big priority for me is transform livestock farming, take that transformative step, half grain fed and soy fed meat in our diets, massively reduce the demand for animal feed. And it's, not, it's that, not the chief scientist's uh, livestock intent, uh, productivity agenda that will actually cut uh, some slack for the climate and nature and for our own health. I'll leave it there. Many thanks and many thanks indeed, Joe. Thanks very much indeed for those uh, comments and reflections. Really useful. Um, Tim, can I ask you to come back uh, on the screen, if you would, um, just so uh, just to engage with some of these questions uh, that we've got coming through. Uh, we've gone a bit over time, but let's let's if we can just do ten minutes on questions and answers. Um, so there's a number of questions about what can be done locally. People working in Bath and North East Somerset. People working. Uh, at the local level to develop local plans. And Joe referred at the end to local procurement, flexible procurement. There's questions about data sharing too. And in the context, Tim, of this you know, global political economy, lots of vested interests at work, lots of things which are very hard to shift and change. Um, what kind of advice and optimism can you give to people working at the local level, trying to forge a different path for themselves? Uh, well, I, I've been trying to tap away while Joe was talking. That was lovely, Joe. Thank you. As ever, incredibly thoughtful and well and good. I don't disagree with any of it. And, and I didn't know actually about the dynamic food procurement stuff, so I'd like to find out more about that. Um, so thank you for that. I'm actually an optimist. Uh, my, I always claim this is my mother's fault, um, who said I was perverse because I was a breech baby. In other words, I came out backside first, despite all her good intentions, or indeed her doctors. But the, the obstetrician who dealt with her had the wonderful name Lily Crap, so I rest my case. Um, um, he was the mayor of Lincoln, no less. Um, uh, well, later, anyway. Uh, I'm an optimist because I think uh, we humans are stupid, but not that stupid. We can read the writing on the wall. And I think we're reading the writing on the wall at the moment, Nick. Uh, and there's, in fact, just looking at some of the questions there, which are really wonderful. So thank you, everyone. Um, I, I think that we know enough to know that we, there is no, not just one set of problems in, in this little bit, you know, on the edge of the field. It's actually right across the food system. And unless we deal with it as a food system, we're not going to resolve that. And we, we kind of got there. Nick, you of all people know when you're in the cabinet office, to everyone's total surprise, including most of the ministers at the time, we ended up in 2010 with what retrospectively was a very radical systemic look, negotiated with the entire British food system with the food companies, with the FDF, right across the food matters process led, led from the cabinet office, as you know, um, got everyone to agree, actually, we had to do something about obesity, had to do something about malnutrition, had to do something about food security, and set up an entirely new system, uh, which was then immediately dismantled by the coalition government. The government's come in and they want to do it. Well, the good news is we're now relearning it. So one of the only times I get angry with Henry Dimbleby is when he keeps talking stupidly of saying this is the first review of British food policy for 75 years. Not true. It's actually nine years ago. We were well beyond this. 
So, and my goodness, would things have been different if we were doing it? Just go and look at what's happening in the Netherlands or in Germany or in Sweden. They're way ahead of us because they've actually incrementally developed their policy. We've, we've been disrupted. Uh, we Brits who, who pretend that we're very cautious and pragmatic and incremental are the exact opposite, actually. We wait till there's a crisis to do something. Well, we're in a crisis. Uh, so I'm an optimist because we're being forced to be optimistic. And I'm an optimist because Britain, and Joe is the illustration, we have this fantastic food movement, which is pouring out ideas, which is lobbying. Just look at what's happened over trade and food standards. The NFU, which brilliantly, indeed, I urged them three years ago to begin to do this. Uh, and they began to do it very effectively. They got the public really wound up about chlorinated chicken and food standards. And the government through the Trade and Agriculture Commission as a way to deal with it, but didn't put anyone from public health, anyone from environment, anyone from animal welfare on it. Uh, and it's a complete charade. Well, what does the British food movement do immediately, Nick? It sets up another. Uh, uh, and so actually that's what gives me optimism, that the people are actually getting organized. To give a little example, in Joe's world, uh, two, three, four weeks ago, I was in front of the Kendall, the little town in uh, the Lake District. Kendall has a climate change citizen jury negotiating, thinking, what can they do about it? And they spent a whole evening on, on food and diet with lots of us arguing about what could be done. I mean, I think that's very moving. Okay. What isn't happening is the framework uh, from the centre. And that's where Dimbleby becomes important uh, because it's England, not Wales or Scotland and Northern Ireland, but the danger is it's going to be constrained. And I've done a long answer to someone in the Q&A, but I'm an optimist because we're being made to do this change. We're being made to do it. Right. Thank you very much. Thanks very much in, indeed, Tim. And um, I, I, I thank you very much also for referencing the work that we did in number 10 in the cabinet office back in, well, between 2007 and 2010. And, um, when we kicked it off, people thought it was, you know, where's this all coming from? And then with the spike in commodity prices, it suddenly became a politically big thing. And, and as you say, uh, ended up being, I think, a very important strategy and changing machinery of government and so on. But um, so hopefully the, the memory of the state is there to bring some of these things back. Well, Joe, look, Nick, it isn't, there's no memory at all. I find myself telling civil servants who are uh, sort of a quarter my age, saying, actually, do you know the, the, this way? Really they say, really? And I send them documents. You can't believe it. The, the civil service used to be really good at inculcating that sort of, uh, what the dreadful eugenicists would call uh, race memory. Uh, that isn't the case. So actually academics like you and I really have a responsibility on that. Joe, can I just ask one question just at the end here from Pippa Simmons did, uh, about the concept of planetary health um, and whether that's good for as a conceptually for helping us join these things which might otherwise be thought of as not in a systemic connection to each other. Yeah, I mean, the more, like, as with ecological public health, you know, mm. planetary health, the more we can we can join at the hip these two concepts. So I, 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 it's absolutely essential. And, and the Lancet Commission was... Was brilliant in putting a marker down about that and then there was the, the further the Lancet Commission on the syndemic between climate change and obesity and malnutrition. Um, it does worry me when we have huge amounts of energy going into uh, public health initiatives to change our diets in, in very incremental ways to do with reformulating processed food, to do with reducing calories or, or salt for instance. 
when, when there's a bigger joined up diet shift project that's needed, that's about healthy and sustainable diets. Um, and we cannot afford to allow this, um, this energy to remain in one silo over here about public health and not to transfer across to being about healthy and sustainable diets about planetary health. I want to just end with one question, which has come from uh, somebody in the farming community, I, I think, in the chat. Uh, and this is the question of, you know, often these things are polarised between, you know, farmers versus public health or farmers versus landies and so on. Um, uh, and many farmers will say, no, though, we, we want to be engaged in this transformation and, are, and, and indeed are engaging in changing how they farm and what they produce. Um, but the question, I suppose, for a lot of them is how can we have trust? In, you, you know, you talked, Tim, in your... Uh, uh, lecture about the tensions within the union between the United, you know, the different parts of the United Kingdom, and of course with Brexit looming, there's a lot of distrust about you know what the government's doing in its negotiations and a sense of you know fear and foreboding about things like 40% tariffs. So how do you generate for farmers a sort of place in this national conversation and the sense of trust? Uh, that the state is going to respond to them, that the system we come out with is going to be one they can work within. I have a very short, I'm sure this is much more Joe's area than mine, but my answer is, well, I spell it at great length in my book because when, when I was drafting it at great length, um, colleagues and peer reviewers said, Tim, you've got to answer all of these enormous problems. So in fact, there's a huge section of my book. It's not just two, two pages of conclusions. Um, and one of the key elements of it is about re-regionalization, uh, really proper devolution. What, what the British state did, and I blame the Labour government for, for messing it up, and John Prescott actually, um, uh, not to personalize it around, he seems a fairly decent chap at one level, um, but they messed it up. Uh, we've got divided powers. I'm on the London Food Board, my one role in, in the British state apparatus is I'm a member of the London Food Board advising the, the London Mayor uh, and was for Boris Johnson too. Um, and uh, uh, look at the powers London has as opposed to Manchester has as opposed to Birmingham as opposed to Newcastle. You know it's divide and rule. The good news that's happening at the moment Nick is a, a group which I uh, gather is called M9. The mayors are talking to each other uh, and they're sharing. Uh, and they're beginning to share across with Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Uh, so you're seeing the regions, not North versus South. I hated the Northern powerhouse notion. I thought it was stupid, actually, if I may be really frank, um, because it left Cornwall, it left Devon, it left the Southeast, it, it left the fact that London, the richest city in, in Britain, the biggest city in Europe, has the poorest boroughs of anywhere in, in the UK or in London. Somehow London got lost, you know, Northerners could blame Hackney. I mean, for goodness sake, this is ludicrous. This is an inequalities problem, and that's a democratic deficit problem. So I think we have to have a debate, and you're seeing it around COVID-19. Whatever you think about Andy Burnham, look at how Conservative MPs and Labour MPs came together and backed it. There's a bit of edging going on now, but wow, they were really clear. Why should the poor hospitality sector of Greater Manchester, a city I know incredibly well and lived in, and have family in, uh, why should they be penalised and put on to five pounds an hour? Why should they? When, uh, you know, Deloitte's consultants are getting one and a half, two, three thousand pounds a day for 
setting up a, an ineffective track and trace system. Can I be really hard? That's me being very political. So I think that sentiment is feeding in now to what I now come down, say, well, food democracy is about creating new co-committees, uh, new regional committees. I think you're seeing it. At one point in my written talk, actually, there's say, look, from food festivals come food committees. And food festivals have exploded in Britain, actually. They're a remarkable social movement. What we need to do is capture cultural identity by having the Lakes Food Committee. You know, we, we began to get that with the regional development uh, 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 agencies. They were abolished and replaced by very weak local enterprise boards, uh, partnerships, labs. Uh, but they're ready for retaking. And I think COVID-19 is bringing back a regional sub-national sentiment in Britain. And this is the politics, it's way beyond my expertise, but I look at it at great length. We will not deal with it unless we did what the Brits did to Germany in 1945. They created a federal structure actually. And Britain didn't want a federal structure in Europe. They wasn't prepared to play the game. Well, we're now in a post-imperial position well, we haven't got an empire, we haven't got a navy, we're fantasists are talking about long supply routes. Uh, actually, this is a wake-up call to federate Britain, actually. Okay, well, that's my that's my personal response. Yeah, I mean, and there's a whole other series of debates and seminars. That's fantastic. There are, there are, there are. Huge issue. Um, Joe, I just want you to, uh, to, to just the answer, if you may, on the kind of farmer's point, and then I'll, I'll wrap things up. Yes. Um, I think that bringing this question of how do you restore trust in farmers, how can farmers place their trust in this, in this transition that needs to happen? I mean, I, I hope that uh, the opportunity will be taken with, with the COP, with the climate summit. It has nature as, its, as a key theme, as a nature campaign. We need to hear farmer voices at the heart of that because farming has, has, been, has been branded as the problem. It has all the solutions, um, particularly if you look, if you join the dots between climate and nature. Um, so I think we have a, a fantastic band of agroecology farmer ambassadors um, who are all active on, on social media and sharing what's happening on their farms, how they're making it square financially, um, how they're uh, yeah, progressing this, this journey and, and taking it step by step. You know, they're not all organic. They're absolutely on a, on a journey, but they care about uh, what they can do for climate and nature and health, um, but they need to have viable farming businesses. I think it's it's having those ambassador voices um, from the farming community is also about um, making sure that uh, there is a really clear vision and transition and transition plan alongside this reform of, of farm subsidies, the ELM scheme, um, which says, yeah, this is this is how we're going to invest in helping farmers make this transition explore their different routes to a financially viable model that does deliver for climate and nature and health uh, and invest in that in that resilience of farmers now and take them with you and not just stop at the farm subsidy reform but think about those other policy levers like procurement uh, like proper advice for farmers so you can really really get behind this transition. Great well thank you very much John. I, I, I see in the Q&A that there's you know lots of people um, thanking you, Tim, and thanking you, Joe, for your excellent talks this evening. It's been a, a really great evening. Uh, I want to add my thanks to those and to say, you know, thanks very much for coming and sharing your expertise with us um, and huge interest in the issues that you've uh, been talking about. Thanks, too, to our Vice-Chancellor Ian White for 
introducing the evening, my colleague um, Sophie has put into the uh, chat for everybody still watching uh, details of the um, the, of Tim's book and details of uh, Joe's manifesto, other soil association materials. Um, thank you again, uh, Vice Chancellor. And I would say just to um, to everybody, do keep in touch with the work of the IPR. Do keep in touch with our public lectures and events. We'll be continuing to work in this area, continuing to try to contribute to the public debate, to research and teaching on these vitally important issues. Um, but just to finish this evening by thanking uh, Tim, thanking Joe, and all of you at home for uh, tuning in and uh, watching this lecture tonight. Thanks very much indeed for your time. Good evening. And thank you too. Thank you, VC too. Great stuff. Well done, Nick. Very, very nice.